your congresswoman elect loves you and I need you to get that because if I love you I care that you eat if I love you, I care that you have shelter and adequate safe housing. If I love you, I care that you have clean water and clean air and you have a livable wage. If I love you, I care that the police don't murder you. If I love you, I care that you make it home safely. If I love you, I care that you are able to have a dignity and have a quality of life the same as the next person, the same as those that don't look like you, that didn't grow up the same way you did, the, those that don't have the same socioeconomic status as you, I care and we will meet the challenges of this moment as a movement side by side arm in arm with our fists in the air with our fists in the air ready to serve each other until every single one of us is free no fancy audio collage this week just the incredible Cory Bush there an organiser in Ferguson after the killing of Mike Brown and now congresswoman elect in Missouri you are listening to Navarra FM on Resonance 104.4 FM London's finest radio station I am James Butler as we're going to air it looks like Joe Biden will be the next president of the United States Trump has taken to Twitter and given a couple of rambling speeches asserting that the election is being stolen uh, without, of course, any evidence or, or basis uh, to back it up. Uh, he's also certainly trying to rev up his base to contest it somehow, but even Fox News seems a bit lukewarm about it. It is dramatic and it's ugly. It's also sort of horrifying to watch from a distance. And of course, who knows what Trump might do in the transfer of power period. I don't think he's built to concede. Back in 2016, I suggested that what he had wanted more than anything was to set up Trump TV with a ready-made base convinced that he was robbed. And maybe that's what will happen now. Maybe we'll watch the fascinating and rather gruesome spectacle of a man in terminal decline become gradually more unhinged down the barrel of a camera on a cable news channel. Who knows? One thing it wasn't, though, was a Biden landslide. At the moment, it looks like 70 million people voted for Trump after four years of his presidency. And that is a truly astonishing number. There's a lot to think about there, about what it means. Uh, The expectation that Trumpism would undo itself through its extremity, through its corruption or through its incompetence, that looks like a bad, bad bet. With or without him, it doesn't look to me like Trumpism is going away. And Biden? Well, Biden is almost certainly going to be governing with a Republican Senate, which will slam the brakes on anything even looking like change. So what to make of transformations to American political culture over the last four years? My name is Joanne Vipievsky. I'm a political journalist and the author most recently of a book called What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Me Too, Essays on Sex, Authority and the Mess of Life. We should start by saying like, how is this election turning out, uh, you know, versus your expectations going in? Uh, I was never a believer that this was going to be some kind of blowout for the Democrats. I don't believe the polls. I think people lie. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about, oh, what did the pollsters do differently? And what could they do and how they screwed up and how the media screwed up, etc. But the, I think the central feature is that people don't tell the truth. Um, they don't tell the truth for a number of reasons, uh, I think. Uh, they're afraid to say they're for Trump um, or they're, you know, they're extra proud to say they're for Trump. Um, you know, they're afraid to say they're for Biden. They don't really like Biden. Um, they're voting against Trump. I mean, I just I think people lied the first time and I think they're lying this time. Um, so. Uh, you know, or they, or they, or they, they're not lying, but they don't show up. Um, or there's voter suppression, which is not to be taken lightly. So I, I never thought this was going to be a blowout for, for Biden. I never thought it was a sure thing for Biden at all. I thought the media, which is, I mean, the mainstream media, the liberal media, which is, you know, basically a propaganda machine for, um, for the Democratic Party I and for the national security state, I, I kind of felt that, you know, they were they had written their own story and they were repeating it endlessly, kind of for themselves and kind of to, you know, kind of create facts on the ground and 
and uh, enthusiasm on the Democratic side. But, you know, it's a very fractious country. It's been a very difficult time. And but Biden is not a, a really uh, exciting individual. I mean, he's not an exciting candidate. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it, it's it's super it's super interesting to watch the the election from obviously outside the states. Uh, I mean, you know, obviously as people on the left, we, it seems to me, I, I, you know, I watched the election going on, and, and it's an odd experience in this election because it, you know, you have Trump who is certainly rhetorically running against the radical left without there actually being the radical left present exactly. in the electoral sense, exactly. certainly at the presidential or, level. Or really in the political realm, I have to say. I mean, mm-hmm, it's not mm-hmm, as if mm-hmm. there is a left. I mean, there are tons of leftists. There are lots of left organizations. There are candidates or people in office who call themselves socialists or whatever. But, you know, there is nothing to rival the right uh, in the United States on the left. In terms of organization from the grassroots to the highest reaches of power, you're right. Absolutely. I mean, I was I was saying to a friend the other day. You know, the the easiest job in the world is if you're a conservative, you go to law school, and then you've got, you know, within right. a couple of years, a job for life on the bench through the the Federalist right. Society, things like that. <laughs> <laughs> but it does it does seem to me like really curious that there is this sort of enduring rhetoric of anti-communism, which seems central to American political life long after American communism <laughs> has been a phenomenon. I think it speaks to a, a kind of cultural energy around um, finding enemies and naming enemies and communism being, you know, the most, uh, you know, prominent enemy of the last I don't know, 70 years or something. Um, but in this country, in terms of organized organized power and a organized, sustained fear campaign, um, you know, that really stands out, you know, the Red Scare. And the Red Scare, it ought to be um, pointed out, was also uh, a lavender scare, you know, uh, simultaneously. It was a fight against homosexuality uh, and and a fear of homosexuality. I mean, going back to the 50s, uh, it was also a um, racist um, campaign. Communism, you know, there were signs. You can see signs from the time where people are on the steps of a schoolhouse saying, you know, no communism, no race mixing. So race mixing and communism were always twinned and homosexuality and communism were always twinned. And of course, you know, sexual profligacy and, and, and all kinds of, you know, all kinds of things were always part of the toolkit really of anti-communism. It it was, it was quite uh, expansive. So, you know, even after the Red Scare and even after the you know, the destruction of the House on American Activities Committee and, and everything it stood for, uh, that cultural thing uh, continues. And, and I think that one of the features of the Trump period is that, that that kind of politics, that kind of energy around enemy others, what the anthropologist Roger Lancaster calls a poison solidarity, has really become kind of the culture of American politics. It's the energy that drove the mainstream media against Trump. It's certainly the energy that Trump himself uh, was, you know, um, was an exemplar, the chief exemplar of. That's his brand. uh, That's his politics. That's the way he... uh, roused his base. That's the way he conceived of his base in terms of a group of aggrieved people who hate others and take enjoyment in the humiliation of others. And I, I think that, that that that's something that we, we needed to defeat. And I'm hoping um, we will defeat. I went back and I read um, a piece that you wrote for the New Left Review um, just when Trump was being in, inaugurated. It's called The Politics of Insecurity. Um, which is a super, super interesting piece. And I think there's a lot in it. 
Um, I, but I, I was curious about, you know, whether you think the the sort of Trump coalition you've outlined there has it changed over the course of the past four years? Has it changed? You know, are, are the people who are who are behind him, you know, ha, has it changed uh, in that sense? Is there something? Is is there anything about the last four years that has really surprised you in the way that he's responded um, to the people who voted for him? I really thought um, that if one was a smart politician and one had lost the popular vote, and one had inherited um, a fairly good economy and uh, had come to the fore saying that he was going to, you know, drain the swamp and be someone else and really care about the people and have a kind of populist agenda that was not a racist um you know, anti-socialist, anti-communist, uh, populist agenda. But, you know, what the first thing you would have done is you would have said, look, I'm a builder. I build beautiful things and I'm going to institute a terrific infrastructure project and the roads and the bridges and the tunnels and the subways and all kinds of things in the United States are crumbling and are disasters. And, you know, even though you know, it looks like we're close to so-called full employment. We all know that that's not really true. And there are tons of jobs that are uh, are low-wage jobs. There are tons of people who work in multiple jobs. There are tons of people who aren't counted, who work for cash. There's There's lots that needs to be done, and we can do this, people, you know. And I would think that that would have been such a masterstroke because, A, he would have consolidated um, his, you know, sort of the, the part of his working class um, base that he had. And I would never say, you know, it's, it's ironic that it continues to be said that the Republican Party has become the party of the working class. And I, I find that so offensive and just wrong. Um, I don't think by the way, either party is the party of the working class. I mean, basically the working class is given a boot in the rear and, and, and told to behave um, and, and then given all kinds of uh, things in lieu of security, in lieu of, um, of an income, in lieu of some sense of stability. Uh, so they're given someone to hate or they're given a perk here or there or a you know, some promise of a tariff for a trade deal or whatever, which is nonsense. But, um, but you know, I really would have thought that he could have shored up part of his base. He could have won a lot of support, but crucially, he could have really um, uh, disarmed um, the Democrats because how on earth could they have opposed an infrastructure plan? And he could have, have disabled and disarmed the Democrats. But of course, he's not a smart politician. He's not a politician at all. He's a, a huckster. He's a promote, self-promoter. He's a narcissist. And he believes his own lies is the worst part. You know, he's, yeah. he's not a businessman either, P.S. You know, he's not a success. <laughs> he's not... Uh, you and know, he's a reality TV show. He's a star, reality right? TV star. And that's what people voted for in 2016. You know, people voted for uh, the Donald Trump of The Apprentice. Now, how any working class person can vote for somebody whose tagline was you're fired, uh, I really don't know. But, you know, people aren't really rational actors. You know, most people don't have some sort of, you know, ideological, clear sort of political kit uh, upon which they make their decisions. You know, they, they have sort of a grab bag of ideas. And also they're, um, you know, they're impressed by a certain kind of uh, bravado. But most of, of the country was was impressed by this guy in the boardroom who, who wasn't a real guy. But I think Trump believed he was that guy. Um, and I think that's important. The, the politics of belief, you know, is is pretty important uh, in in any, I mean, in any situation, but especially in in. Uh, you know, assessing these candidates. Like there's something intriguing about what you're talking about here, because seeing the result out of Florida, where you have people voting for Trump, sure, but also voting for a $15 minimum wage ballot initiative. Exactly. And it just struck me, you know, that put next to the stuff you wrote in 2016, and you said 
um, in, in that piece uh, for New Left Review, that there's, uh, I will read the quote back to you, there's no broadly articulated class politics in which race, sex, origin are not add-ons, not simply matters of inclusion, but deeply entwined as they are in life. And Sanders didn't have this. And I, I, I think, you know, th- I, I thought at the time that was, you know, expressed exactly what I was kind of thinking about that that election. And I wonder if you get a sense among, you know, that that part of the Democratic Party that is still absolutely marginal, um, but, uh, but, but, you know, certainly from what I read seems to be growing. Um, obviously, Cory Bush is now elected and so on and so on. Um, do you get a sense that that something like that is being built? What's your sense of where the debates are on the left in the States about that question, about that intertwining of identity, class, uh, background, and so on? I think that the, some of the new people who are entering the electoral realm certainly promote that kind of uh, interlacing. Um, certainly promote a kind of, you know, realistic class politics. And by realistic, <laughs> you know, I mean uh, class politics that reflects class as it exists in real life and are able to speak about it, importantly, in a language that is a real language, you know, that's not a language of white papers and and uh, and policy, you know, initiatives. It may have, it should have, policy aspects, but, but crucially, it has to have a, a kind of cultural meaning and uh, resonance. And I think that there are people who are doing that. And I, I, um, I do take issue with some people on the left who say that, you know, this is a, a kind of bought off sector of, of Democrat light, Democratic Party light, uh, whose sole job is to, you know, win power within the Democratic Party. And really, there's no difference between Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and Joe Biden. I mean, I was in a conversation with people on election night about this very subject. And I just thought, well, this is nonsense. You know, I mean, AOC is not uh, Ocasio-Cortez is not uh, Joe Biden light. And there is a, uh, a, a contest within the Democratic Party. I wouldn't say it's the kind of contest you have in the Labor Party uh, because the Democratic Party, one, is not structured that way, uh, but also, too, because there's not, uh, there's not, because of the way the Labor Party is structured, there are structures that are, you know, that are, are, are woven into uh, the nature of the party um, and might be unwoven, I suppose. But uh, in the Democratic Party, it's not really like that. It's kind of a question of uh, what kind of constituencies do you put together and um, for electoral uh, achievements. One of the interesting things, I think, uh, that's come out of this election or that, that I just noticed in this election is, you know, Biden really had no ground game. Um, And I thought, wow, you know, the Democrats aren't going door to door. The Republicans are going door to door. Okay. I understand it's COVID, you know, but still a ground game is pretty crucial. You know, if you think you're going to win by TV ads, et cetera, you have to have that kind of organization. So I was actually very pessimistic about Biden's chances going into this election despite the polls, despite everything, Uh, because I still think that people want, I mean, I used to be out on the, every year, except this year, you know, because obvious reasons, but uh, I I wasn't out on the campaign trail at all, uh, not for any part of it. I wasn't, I mean, I haven't been reporting um, on the ground like that at all in this period. So, um, uh, but, so I, you know, I didn't, uh, but but you're, it's always clear from the past, it was always clear to me that people always said, you know, we want them to ask us for our vote. And I always thought, how quaint, you know. I mean, even as people know how remote the system is from them, how remote the political machinations of Washington are from their daily lives, there is still this notion of, you know, retail politics, we want them to say on this day, we care, we care about you and we're asking you, please vote for me. Like 
just just do me this favor of your vote. And 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 I was thinking, wow, they're not doing that well. But what took place was a, a lot of surrogacy, and I don't mean uh, people who were sent by the Biden campaign. That occurred, of course. But I mean organizations that decided that they were going to go door to door, that they were going to make the calls, that they were going to do the ground game. And so in places like Arizona and parts of Pennsylvania, maybe all of Pennsylvania, I only know about a few parts, but it could be everywhere. In Georgia, particularly, the fact that Georgia is competitive is astounding. This is astounding. And it has a lot to do with Stacey Abrams, um, who's been running something called Fair Fight Action since she narrowly lost and possibly won, uh, but was denied uh, the governorship. Right. She was dealing with the, the vote vote suppression stuff, right? Yeah. In Georgia in 2018, she was running for governor. She would have been the first Democratic statewide candidate to win governor of Georgia in you know decades. And she would have been the first black person ever and the first woman ever and the first black woman ever. And, you know, she almost won. And and but there was a lot of voter suppression, a lot of trickiness. And the guy who did win was in charge of the election. He was the secretary of state who is in charge of election rules. So this, you know, this should have been I mean, this was patently fraudulent uh, just for that reason alone, because there was, you know, wild conflict of interest. But anyway, there there have been um, groups organizing and one of the people um, one of the people who was organizing uh, the you know in black communities for Biden was not really organizing for Biden. you know he was saying let's vote for power. let's vote for power. let's vote to create an electoral block where we can really have some say, not where we just, hustle the votes together for an election um, today or next month or next year or the runoffs in January or whatever. Let's do this as part of, you know, a political strategy. You certainly saw that in Arizona um, among Latinos. I mean, in Nevada among Latinos and among the um, the culinary workers who are, you know, who form the biggest most powerful and probably most effective politically labor group, union group in the country. I mean, there were very, very sophisticated ground games that these organizations put together. And I think that Biden owes them. You know, I I don't, uh, I find Biden repellent. Uh, But I do think Biden is not stupid. Biden's going to know who he owes. Now, the problem is he's going to think he also owes the Republicans and the the national security state and the, the liberal media and all those Republicans against Trump and Republicans for Biden and the, um, the Lincoln Project. And that is his default um, reflex, let's face it. I mean, he when when Trump said, you know, you've been in for 47 years, you know, what have you accomplished? Well, he accomplished quite a lot, just kind of not uh, n- not anything that we would be cheering about. So, so I was thinking about um, but your last book, but also the, the, you know, the essay that you wrote about Brett Kavanaugh um, and uh, this kind of huge political cultural phenomenon of Me Too, and some of the other phenomena that have, you know, arisen over the course of the past few years, uh, Black Lives Matter, and then the kind of conspiracy theory stuff around QAnon, all this stuff circulating around. And those last two, obviously, were talked about a great deal, I think, in this election. Lots of people were talking about Black Lives Matter. Lots of people were talking about the the risk of conspiracy theory. But Me Too, although it was huge, kind of as a part of political culture, a couple of years ago, it seems almost to have disappeared entirely from kind of mainstream discourse. And so I was, you know, I was thinking some of the stuff you wrote about Kavanaugh at the time about uh, the question of the kind of criterion of wisdom uh, for judges and, and that that you made an attack on, on Kavanaugh that I thought was uh, really perceptive, which is that, that actually the problem wasn't to do with what he did when he was 17, but his inability to uh, as an adult, kind of reflect he, that he was indifferent to suffering, uh, and so on. Uh, that seemed to me a, a remarkably perceptive yeah, assessment thank you. Uh, of a situation <laughs> I found otherwise very, uh, very kind of difficult 
to, to navigate. Why why has Me Too sort of dropped out of of, of the headlines? And, and do you have a kind of more general reflection about where American political culture is heading? Do these phenomena tie together? I think Me Too is a phenomenon of Trump, frankly. Now, I think I'm a real minority in this opinion. And that is not to say that, you know, violence against women is not uh, an issue, is not uh, important, that harassment at work, uh, that rape, none of those things, uh, that, you know, none of those things are unimportant. But, uh, but I think that there was such a rage around Trump winning and Trump particularly stealing the crown from Hillary Clinton, who... A lot of uh, liberal women who, let's face it, were the, uh, you know, the shock troops and the, the guardians of the gate of Me Too, uh, you know, who, who saw them, themselves as sort of approaching a kind of victory in Hillary Clinton's uh, hoped for victory. Um, I think when that was lost um, and... And, and also the, the campaign was pretty misogynist and, and it was misogynist from the left as well. You know, the commentary, um, you noticed this. Um, I think that, that Me Too is in some ways kind of a weird displacement. Like, and someone actually said it from Hollywood, you know, uh, at the time. And I don't remember who it was, but it was a little chat show I was watching. And somebody, uh, one of the women who was... Uh, very big on on the Harvey Weinstein and and the whole Hollywood uh, you know rash rash of uh, accusations said well we can't get to Trump so you know this is the next best thing and and I was astounded that somebody actually said that because I'd been kind of thinking this you know like gee isn't this interesting that this kind of emerges suddenly and and that it's and it, and because it's not like all of a sudden it's new I mean you know it's and and uh. It's not like you know sexual harassment is new, but but this sort of phenomenon of accusation and punishment, and again this reflection of this poisoned solidarity, this idea that you find your unity and your strength and your power through you know your shared fear and hatred of some enemy, other some demon. You know this was a reflection of Trump politics only on the other side. So um, I think it was a spent force from the beginning because I, I don't think, well, I mean, the politics of fear and accusation is, is, pretty, um, is pretty green, you know, it's, it's kind of evergreen, but it, it does go in, in waves. I mean, it kind of rises and falls and then it finds another iteration. Um, I think that Me Too in its specific form kind of, uh, kind of was bound to be silenced once its chief exponent said, well, but not for Joe Biden, you know, um, now we're going to do what, what, what seemed to be the only fair thing uh, all along. Now we're going to listen to the accusation and now we're going to test that accusation and we're going to, we're going to see if there's corroboration and we're going to see if it holds together and we're going to see if, if you know, if, why now we're going to, we're going to, we're going to be questioning and skeptical. We're not going to say, believe the women or believe the woman. So then you had these people falling over themselves, one, being real haters of Tara Reid, which I thought was astounding. You know, she had to be taken down. Now, that then uh, calls to question the idea that this was ever anything based on principle. Because if, uh, if it's just a phenomenon or a political movement or a media uh, creation or a media uh, panic uh, that is applicable when the accused is somebody, you know, you don't like, somebody who you're, you're against politically or somebody who you can demonize, um, then there's no principle involved. There's just some sort of hack uh, judgment and I think Me Too was bound to be silenced once, once it did that. You know, I think feminism is really should be, at its best, it has been a movement for human freedom, you know, for peace, for well-being, for, for genuine solidarity, and for equality that 
goes beyond the idea of representation. So, you know, not how many women might be CEOs, but whether, you know, the system of CEOs and corporate capitalism is serving uh, the, the, the common good, you know, and it, it clearly is not. Um, so, you know, I think, I think that that kind of feminism has always been there, but it's been a kind of minority feminism. It's not been the, the loud uh, NGO, neoliberal kind of um, feminist organizations that have been at the fore for the last, you know, many decades. I mean, in the 70s, you know, you had serious people saying interesting left, having interesting left analyses, but that's been a long, and those people exist. But I think that, I think to go back to one of your earlier questions, there is an obsession with representation um, in this country as a political goal. You know, I also think that there, the younger generation of people who are emerging and who are, who are active uh, really do have a much more complex way of seeing, uh, seeing reality and and so it's a feminist analysis it's also a class analysis that's also race analysis it's also you know a power analysis and and you know i mean it's the long game uh it really is that's a terrible cliche but there was never going to be some kind of elation uh at the moment of joe biden's victory it, should he have a victory uh there will be elation among the mainstream press, but then they're in a bind because suddenly their best issue has been taken from them. I mean, they, you know, to watch the mainstream media, especially, you know, like MSNBC and those other real adjuncts of the Democratic Party over the last four years has just been appalling. Uh, One young person called it Trump derangement syndrome. And it's certainly, you know, when you see people who call themselves leftists, Suddenly, you know, finding any excuse to cheer Democrats, any excuse to attack the Republicans and the president. So I think they must be in some minor crisis now because their bottom lines and their identities have been shaped around Trump, around this idea of poison solidarity, you know, around the enemy other. And now they're going to have to go back to being, will they actually be uh on the job, you know, uh, will they will they be paying attention to what is um, what is going wrong with the with the if Biden wins, you know what what what's what kind of policies he's promoting, what kind of people he's promoting, who's getting the stick? Um, w- will they be vigilant? I mean, I I don't hold out a lot of hope for the mainstream media, you know, but I do think that. I do think that there is more space for the left. I really do. If uh, if Biden wins, if only because this language, this language and this this politics of of you know of joint name calling and debasement and humiliation of the other, and I mean it's it's really tiring and it leads nowhere except to you know shooting in the street. Uh, which, you know, um, they have more guns than we do. and Yeah, that's why we have to do politics, right? <laughs> that's why we do politics, right. My thanks to Joanne. And I should say her book on Me Too, which is really about a lot more besides uh, on desire, on panic, on sadism, on poisoned solidarity, really, really worth picking up. Uh, so what about the left? How do things look for the recently reborn American left? Well, I knew just who to ask about that Hi, I'm Vivek Chibber. I teach sociology at New York University, and I'm also the editor of Catalyst, um, which is a journal that's put out by Jacobin Magazine. Um, and I live and work in New York. And did you? Uh, how was your How was your election day? Were you out, or were you watching, or were you teaching? Were you working? Well, you you can't really be out very much. Uh, no. <laughs> there's nothing much happening, and in New York. It was a ghost town because I guess there was a fear on everybody's part of rioting or something. So mm-hmm. it was funny. I did go out on that on election day, but it, the city was completely deserted. It was as if the, the way it was during the peak of the coronavirus lockdowns. 
So oh, one wow. uh, observed and watched the results on television at home. So I, I guess there's maybe something interesting to jump in on here at the beginning. And obviously, we're we're kind of waiting for the final result. It looks like it's probably going to be a Biden presidency. But, you know, I mean, there have been surprises in the past. It looks doesn't look like there's a great path to Trump winning, but whatever. Um, it, there's been a lot of comment on Twitter and things like that I've been observing today where they're saying, you know, oh, America is now pulling back from the brink of fascism or whatever. Uh, I, I assume you maybe don't share that analysis entirely. I, how would you, how, how, what, what is the best way of characterizing the politics of the president for these past four years? Well, I think one has to separate the, uh, so first of all, you're right. I, I don't share that view about uh, the U.S. being on the brink of fascism and now stepping back. Um, the, there, there, you have to separate the politics of Trump from the politics of the American state. Trump himself, um, it's, he's an enigma in many ways. Uh, there are times when he seems like an evil genius, where it seems like he really knows what he's doing and he's very canny. And certainly these election results... <laughs> Um, do tend to support the view that the man is not a fool. Mm -hmm. But there are other times which that make it seem like he has the mind of a child and certainly the temperament of a child. Now, I don't think those two views are irreconcilable. He does seem to be something of a narcissist. He does seem to have a very short attention span. And he does seem to have no appetite and no... Uh, patience whatsoever for the art of governance, for uh, statecraft. At the same time, he has an uncanny ability to connect with his base, to have some strategic sense as to what he wants to do, and he cannot and will not be deterred from what he thinks is right. And more often than not, he turns out to be right. Mm -hmm. So um, now that said, his personality is given towards an extreme form of authoritarianism because he has the temperament of a child. He has no compunctions whatsoever about using state institutions to his own end, to bending them to his will, to being contemptuous to the letter of the law, and to uh, bend uh, that law when he seats, when he deems it um, useful for himself. Authoritarianism is no worry to him whatsoever. So if you just focused on Trump, you would say, yeah, there is a definite fascist threat here. Not that he's a committed fascist. It's just that he's a nihilist and a narcissist for whom fascism would not be in any way uh, something undesirable. Now, that has to be separated from the politics of the American state. For fascism to become an instrument of statecraft, you have to have more than just the leader who's willing to use it to his own benefit. You also have to have a wide consensus within, first of all, the political establishment, by which we mean the party structure, and the upper echelons of the state. And secondly, you need to have sufficient support from the ruling class, which is the corporate heads, the business community, which really wields power in society. Now, if you look at it from that angle, there was no threat, nor is there, nor will there be a threat of fascism mm -hmm. as an instrument of the American state, because neither the establishment nor the ruling class has any interest in it. It would be a huge encumbrance upon them if they decided to go in that direction. They are in great shape. Things have been working out for them beautifully for 25, 30 years now. Um, they have they face no threat. And so, in fact, the last, I would say, 18 months, if you look at the unfolding of the political process, what you've seen is the establishment, both economic and political, telling Donald Trump that um, he, his time is up, that they have no more use for him. Um, now, this election will, I think, give him a second lease on life in some way or form. But uh, there, there was, there never was, and there still is not a threat of fascism as a form of governance. There is a threat of an unruly civil society, of very ugly elements coming out, of a resurgence of uh, racism in the public sphere, and all that. Mm -hmm. But that should be mm -hmm. distinguished from fascism. So I, I wonder whether you, what you make of the, the sort of global context in which he's sometimes put, because there's a sort of, I think sometimes slightly lazy, but uh, there, there also seems to be something to it sometimes, a kind of lazy uh, shorthand where people say, oh, you know, like Trump, Modi, Orban, Erdogan, Bolsonaro. Is there a commonality to, to these or is, is, is there just something 
intellectually lazy going on there? Oh, well, most intellectuals are lazy. So I, I, I think that's an easy, that's always going to be for any analysis. If you point to the possibility of intellectual laziness, uh, the answer will be yes. <laughs> um, uh, so of course there's some laziness there, but it's not entirely entirely uh, fiction either. It's not a, a hallucination. There is something going on now. I think the dynamics are not. It's not easy to lump all of these things together in a meaningful way. I don't think what's happening with Modi and perhaps with Erdogan is quite the same as what's happening with Bolsonaro and Trump. Yeah. I don't know how deeply you want me to go into this, but no, no, I'm I'm interested. Tell me, tell me, tell me. Well, what's happening with Modi and uh, is quite different. Let's just take him for a second. What's happening in India is not the implosion of an economic or political system the way we've had with the implosion of neoliberalism in the West. In the West, what you've had is the collapse of the ideological acceptance of neoliberalism and the a tremendous loss of legitimacy of mainstream parties, which has given, opened up a political space for what used to be considered fringe elements to find a electoral window for themselves. What's happening in India is something very, very different. It is the rise and consolidation of the most um, powerful and most deeply rooted political party in the country. The BJP is not only the most ramified and well-managed political machine in India, I would venture to say it's probably the most well-managed political party in the world right now. So it is not like some fringe element coming into power, certainly coming to prominence because the mainstream is collapsing. The BJP is like a virus that's grown over 80 years and now has taken over the mainstream. And it is extremely well anchored in civil society in a way that no other party that uh, it's that Modi is compared to it actually ever claimed to be. Uh, Erdogan, Erdogan, in my sense, in my opinion, uh, is closer to the Modi phenomenon than he is to Bolsonaro and Trump in that he also has a very solid social base, which he's built up over the years in Turkey. Unlike Modi, though, who required, who leaned on the collapse of his opposition in India, what Erdogan has done is he's destroyed his opposition, in my opinion, in Turkey. So that he's an extremely effective political operator. The end game is the same for both of them. The end game is to have not so much a dictatorship, but a hollowed out democracy where authoritarianism can be deployed without having to extinguish formal liberties and formal rights. That is where they, I think, are quite common. Where both of them uh, share something with the West is that both of them have required the collapse of what used to be called mainstream bourgeois parties. Those In India, it's astonishing, but there is no opposition party in India right now. It, that, that this is the collapse of Congress, right? Not just Congress. The communist parties are dead. They, they were the only other effective mainstream party in India that had a national presence. They're dead. The only parties that exist in India right now are regional parties. And they cannot offer any opposition to the BJP. What they will do, in fact, is orbit around the BJP because it, it has the power to dole out favors to them. And this includes the Dalit parties. It includes the peasant parties. They're, they are all completely captured by the elite segments in their particular communities. And they all look to the BJP for sustenance and for succor. Um, something like similar is happening in Turkey, but Turkey never didn't have the effective party system that these other countries did. Their conflicts tended to work out within the state. And what's happened is Erdogan has purged the state of any and all opposition. So that makes his position quite unassailable. So I'm, yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm just curious. I mean, it, it's so like there's obviously. You know, I mean, take the Indian case, for example, there's obviously a clear, as you say, social base there. And it seems, you know, it's obvious uh, there was someone I saw someone sort of saying online today, you know, oh, well, look, look at look in India. You know, I mean, we, we're very good at, at, at conducting uh, massive elections and 
you know, peaceful transitions of power. And I thought, well, <laughs> the possibility of a transition of power in India, it doesn't even seem imaginable uh, right now. It's not a question that 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 really comes up. Um, but it, it made me think, you know, what about here then the question about social uh, kind of social bases in the United States? Because the obvious question to me seems to be about class here. Now, obviously, for the United States, class doesn't seem to track so well to uh, party votes. I mean, I suppose you could talk historically about the tie-up between uh, the bureaucracy of some union movements and the Democratic Party. Uh, but that, is that any longer the case? It doesn't seem to me that there's a very obvious case here of a kind of class correlation to vote. Um, let's distinguish between class strategies and class correlations. By class strategy, I mean what the two, what the, any particular party is seeking in terms of finding an anchor for itself. And let's look at class correlation as the extent to which the anchor of any given party maps cleanly onto a given social class, okay? So it's possible that you're trying as a strategy to anchor yourself in a class, but where the you don't actually succeed because and the correlation ends up being quite weak, yeah? So um, I would say that in the United States right now, your observation is correct, that there is no clean uh, class uh, correlation uh, uh, for either of those two parties. If you want, when you look out at their class map, workers tend to vote for both parties and members of any given class, you can find them on both sides in a way that was not true of European social democracy in its height, let's say from the 1940s to the 1980s, right? If you wanted to find the social base of a social democratic party, overwhelmingly it would be workers and that would show up electorally. So both strategically and in terms of its class correlation, there was a very close fit. Now, in the United States, when if we're just confining our attention to who votes for whom, you will see that there's no clean fit. But as a strategy, I do think there is a difference. And the difference is that the this election showed, and I think it's been true for quite some time, that the Democrats are increasingly actively going after the suburban, more affluent voter base, not unlike the Blairites uh, in England, um, and have been looking for decades to first politically marginalize what working class constituencies it had, and now more recently to actually expel the working class, even as a voting base for itself, because they feel that they don't need it anymore. And ironically, what's happening is that there's been a quite substantial um, exodus of the white working class from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. And if you look at the electoral map of the United States today, the party that is anchored in the most affluent neighborhoods and districts in the country across the board is the Democratic Party. And the party that is anchored in the poorest districts in the country now is the Republican Party. Now, that is a fairly clean correlation, and it does not bode well for the left in this country because there, even though the working class is going over the Republicans, and there's some talk of a shift towards a right-wing populism, there is zero chance of that happening, in my opinion. The only thing you're going to get out of the Republicans is a very vicious kind of nativism, cultural chauvinism, and racism to keep that white working class uh, in its fold. And right, the so there's not going to be like a chauvinist Keynesianism or something like that. I just, I, the, it, the bourgeois base of the party, the funders, the donors of the party would just, they would go to war to prevent. I just can't ever see that happening, right? Um, so you will get a mix of a toxic neoliberalism with some, you know, some overtures to tariffs and some kind of um, active ex- uh, intervention and exchange and exchange rates and things like that. But fundamentally, it, it will have to be an anti-working class party. So the only way, the only thing it has to offer the working class uh, is the class hatred towards the people who vote for the Democrats. And the Democrats are very happy to play that game because then they don't have to promise anything economically to what workers are still linked up with them and to the blacks and Hispanics. They can simply simply be the defenders of bourgeois liberties and some degree of civility and a civic discourse, which the Republicans are 
going all out to attack and to erode. So both parties continue along their commitment to a right-wing economic agenda, but they fight the culture wars. The Republicans playing an offensive strategy, the Democrats being the defenders of bourgeois. Mm. So does do, 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 does the do, does this uh, the, uh, the the sort of the, so we hear a lot. I mean, it's one of the things that that's always the case when you're outside of a, a, a country's elections. You you probably see things that are uh, towards the fringes and and uh, get a somewhat distorted picture. But obviously, as a leftist, I see a lot of talk about sort of Cory Bush, uh, Justice Democrats, people like that. Would you make of that sort of counterweight? within the Democratic Party? I wouldn't ca- call it a counterweight. I would call it a current. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not being facetious. Um, we would like, you would, one would like it to be a counterweight. Um, its its visibility is far ahead of its actual political weight inside the party. Now, visibility helps. In a media-driven political system, visibility helps. But you have the evidence before you. Uh, the Biden campaign after Bernie Sanders pulled out has made zero concessions, zero, to the left of the party. In fact, it's exactly like Hillary Clinton four years before. Everything Biden has been done, sorry, everything Biden has done has been to appease the right wing of the party, and in fact, to appease the wing of the Republicans who they're reaching out to. So while one is rhetorically and in terms of Pushing the needle in terms of political opinion, it's very good to have Cory Bush and AOC and all these people around Rashida Tlaib. Um, seeing them as a counterweight to Biden is, I think, premature right now. Right, right. But I, I mean, I guess like there's something interesting you, you talk about, sort of media-driven political system there. And obviously, I'm thinking about your involvement in Catalyst, and obviously, uh, you know, you publish occasionally sort of pieces in Jacobin as well. I wonder if you have a sense of, of kind of that side of things and you know, uh, of how, particularly in this election, how that, you know, ideological production uh, has worked. And, you know, I mean, it seems to me, for again, from the outside, there is this sort of morass of uh, both sort of right-wing cable news, talk radio, just a, a really overwhelming and very, very powerful ideological apparatus there. Uh, it, it's, you know, how how does one act? How does one move? How does one... Uh, strategize in an environment that's driven so heavily by media? Is it, it, does one just have to sort of think outside of it and, you know, organize in, in a kind of classical uh, sort of workerist almost way? Or, 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 you know, are there avenues there that, that the left could or should be taking? I, I think the general attitude should be exactly what it was 100 years ago which is even 100 years ago. So just think of the media at a fairly high level of abstraction uh, so that you're not focusing on whether it's the internet or whether it's television. You're just looking at mass media, right? Uh, 100 years ago, mass media was also dominated by the bourgeois press. And it was uh, horrible and racist and it was contemptuous towards workers and all that business. I, the, what, does the, what do the most successful left-wing parties do of the time. You know, German social democracy was the emblem of it. Um, you have media of your own. You, you cannot fight without having media of your own so that you're not confined to street corner conversations. And the media is also where you provide analyses and carefully laid out strategy, which you cannot do through, just through conversation. So the presence of Jacobin the presence of other of these fantastic new YouTube channels like Rising um, and you know, to a lesser extent the Young Turks, it, it's a it's puts the left in a place unimaginably better than ten years ago. Ten years ago, there was no daylight, there was no breathing room in public culture to take on not just the right, but the particularly inward-looking identity politics that the left is obsessed with these days. So you need to have that. But just like the left 100 years ago, you have to realize you will never win that fight. There is no way. I mean, look what happened to Corbyn. Look what the media managed to do in England with Corbyn to make make him out to be an anti-Semite. What an amazing achievement. This man who's fought for against racism and against revanchism his whole life. They effectively, and there was nothing, there was no way to beat it. Look what the media did in the United States with uh, Bernie Sanders. Sanders is the most powerful, the most um, uh, the most um, well loved, 
and most popular politician in the country. And they convince people that he can never win, even though he's the most popular man in the country. So while his program wins across the board in the primaries, everywhere that he lost in the primary, his policies won overwhelming support in referendums. He lost. So you're not going to beat the bourgeois media on its own turf. So the only solution is you have to be physically present in that in the constituency that you're seeking to fight with and fight for. You have to have an anchor in working class communities where you're part of them. They recognize you, they trust you, and then you have a chance against the bourgeois media because you're part of their lives. You're in the pubs with them. You're in the clubs. You're in the... Yeah, clubs. right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trying yeah, to I mean, win they... through the airwaves is, I just, it's, I just think it's dead strategy. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, I think we're in agreement there. I mean, you know, I mean, the British press is is a real phenomenon. Uh, I've never uh, seen anything like the British press. I got to tell you, it's shocking how awful it is. the American press gets a lot of you know criticism, but it, it's a model of civility and decorum compared to the the animals in the British the, these uh, Times and Guardian. Oh my God, I've never seen anything like. That. Yeah, it makes the I, Indian I, press look astonishing. Silly. It's astonishing. I mean, the, the, it's 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 interesting that the kind of drama that that is reserved for um, cable news in the US is, you know, it, the entire printed press in the UK. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but like, listen, I mean, the, the, this question, this question though about like, uh, you know, about the Bernie agenda. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I've seen already these attacks coming from uh, these kind of you know real sort of milk toast. Uh, you know, representatives, democratic representatives who are like, oh, it was socialism. It was the mention of socialism that really did for us. Uh, that's the problem. Uh, you know, they're already kind of turning their guns in this direction as they do. Uh, you know, it's, it's like the standard rhetorical uh, strategy for them. But, I, you know, I, I mean, it, it just seems astonishing to me. And I don't know whether it's I, I'm just my perception of this is 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 wrong. But it seems astonishing to me that in the middle of a pandemic, like the conversation about healthcare disappeared in the course of this election. Yeah. So um, here's what the way I would put it. Um, Biden ran two campaigns simultaneously from um, June onwards. What the, there was a major and a minor component. To this. That, it, that There's a secondary campaign and a primary campaign. The secondary campaign was against Donald Trump. The primary campaign he waged was against the left wing of his party, against Bernie Sanders. And the evidence for that is that the second Sanders uh, had, uh, threw in the towel, Biden moved to his right almost, not quite, almost as rapidly as Hillary Clinton did in 2016. He couldn't go as fast and as far because it's a different landscape today where the electorate is much more energized, we're much more demanding of certain policies, and because there's also a small but visible left wing of the party now that's energized. So he could not be as openly contemptuous as, as Hillary Clinton was. But every time the opportunity came up to affirm a commitment to the very policies that the Democratic Party's working class base has is overwhelmingly in favor of, he just cut it off. He said, it's not going to happen. And that was because, as I said, the party has a strategy. And the strategy is to appeal to the suburban affluent voters who are not very interested in these social democratic policies and to a the donor base that is absolutely horrified at the prospect of those policies. So of course, you'll find liberals and Democrats insisting, as they always do, that the reason they lost was that they didn't go to the, to the right far enough. That's a script that you see every four years in the United States. Um, and I'll say this finally. So what if it's true? If you're a socialist, imagine walking into a workplace where all the workers say, we don't want a union. What are you gonna, are you gonna walk away saying, well, screw it. Uh, unions are a dead strategy. You have your analysis of what workers need what their interests are. And you know that if they are expressing doubts or skepticism towards national health care, towards uh, employment programs, it's because they've been fed this stuff that said, if you go in this direction, you'll be met with defeat, with despair, uh, with all sorts of negative consequences. 
you have to patiently work with them. It's only with the political elite and strategists who, who think that Twitter and media campaigns and election outreach is the essence, the summa uh, of politics, that they w- worry about public opinion polls as the end game. For the left, opinion polls are simply where you start. But your sense of strategy comes from your analysis of class and class society and people's interests. And it, right now, the electorate says it doesn't want these things, which is a lie. Of course it does. But assume for a second it didn't. You shrug and you go, okay, our work is cut out for us. <laughs> but otherwise, get out of the game. Don't be, you're not on the left if you think that the, the, mom, the, the, the spectrum of opinion at the moment is the parameter that's going to define your politics. That's simply your starting point, not your end point. Can I, can I, yeah, I, I want to ask a question that kind of follows on from that, actually, and it'll be my last question for you. And it comes from a thought I was reading from Corey Robin, who was writing about the way in which the American political system seems increasingly over the course of the last few decades to, to produce these split legislatures, right? So you, you have you know, split control between an exhausted sort of reactionary ideology on one side and exhausted neoliberal ideology on the other. And it sort of passes back and forth and no one gets anything done and it's a state of gridlock and paralysis. And he says, you know, until the left gets its act together, that's not going to change. And for me, you know, outside the States, obviously there are things I care about in in American politics because I've got lots of friends, lots of comrades in the States and it matters to me in that sense. But it also matters to me because, you know, where the US goes, especially on climate change, where the US military machine goes, where... Uh, the U.S. as a kind of global hegemon goes, you know, it's important to anyone, uh, you know, on on the planet. So, I, you know, my I guess my question is, how does the left domestically for you in the states uh, approach a Biden a Biden presidency? You know, what what are the priorities going to be, and how should it be acting? Well, um, you try to the best of your ability to pressure him uh, to pass what legislation is feasible in this moment, of course. Uh, but that's a losing game. In, in the in the he's not the way it looks right now. It's the Senate will most likely remain in Republican hands, mm-hmm. and um, that means that he will not be able to get much done. Uh, in fact, my own surmise is that I think he's relieved. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I'm I'm guessing he prefers this to a situation where they'd swept both the houses, and now the the pressure would be on for him to actually right. deliver. Um, it would create all sorts of tensions within the or within the party. So you pressure him to the best of your ability, um, the way one always does. But we are in a moment right now where there's an opportunity to build a political organizing machine and a political organiz- organization and political culture the way that we haven't seen in 50 years. And I think the best way forward is to sort of um, step back from the immediacy of the never-ending electoral cycle in the United States, where every two years you have an election, and every two years it's the end of the world, and every two years you have to keep the Republicans out. Um, And you realize what, again, socialists 100 years ago realized, which is you cannot entirely abjure and ignore the electoral arena, but you will never succeed, even in the electoral arena, if all of your power and your strategy is confined to it. You have to build outside it. You have to build a base within the working class. Even mentioning that 10 years ago would have just been hilariously stupid. But we are now in a position where it's, it's feasible. You have an organization that of 100,000 strong that calls itself socialist, which is just an unimaginable achievement. Of course, of that 100,000, only a tiny fraction are committed socialists. But it's a place to start, and it's a resource, and it has tons of money. And one place to start working alongside these attempts to move Biden to the left and to get something out of him is to take seriously the task of building a base within the population, within the sectors that you think is your natural constituency, so that four years from now, you're better positioned. And eight years from now, you'll be even better positioned. Otherwise, this what you end up becoming is a tiny little rump within the Democratic Party, which is being pulled by a, a locomotive, and you're simply a fly on the, the, the final, you know, the car in that train, that locomotive that's being pulled. You have no strength against these people. All right, my thanks to Vivek and Joanne for making the time to sit down with me from across the ocean. It does look like it's Biden 
So my last question, it goes out to all of you listening at home, really. Let's say you're someone who looks at the headlines on climate change. Maybe it keeps you up at night. Maybe you worry. And it's not everything to you and you worry about bills and food and rent and God knows what else. But in the small hours of the night, that fear creeps in, the big systemic fear that we're not doing anything near enough on it. I know it happens to me. Does Biden give you hope? No, probably not. So what is to be done? Before the end of the year, we're going to be thinking about that pretty seriously here on Navarra FM. Otherwise, stay locked right now to Resonance 104.4 FM. I will be back at the same time in the same place next week. Bye-bye.